welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week was amazing with a great guest called Kweku Essien. Kweku is based in Accra in Ghana. He is a partner at Mansa Capital, which is an investment advisory firm, as well as the vice president of partnerships for Sesso Global, a blockchain-based property technology platform. Kweku has a lot of experience working with an entrepreneurial family office that was based in Canada with African-Kenyan roots and ties. And so we had a really interesting conversation on investments, on strategy, on tech, on real estate, on Africa, on family office. It was great. So I encourage you to get your favorite drink and listen in and enjoy. Hi, Kweku. Welcome to The Connected Generation. It's awesome to have you today. Thank you for having me, Nikkei. Real pleasure, real honor uh, being on this show. And uh, I've sort of listened to sort of a lot of your podcasts. I've seen the distinguished guests you've had here. So to be along that line of guests, a very real pleasure, a real honor. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'm excited to learn from you and to, to hear from your journey in life. So tell us more about Kweku. Who is Kweku? And how did you get here? What's the backstory to sure. where you are today? Sure. So, I um, mean, the day, we, we thank God, we thank my family, my parents for anywhere I've been. My dad and mom both been very successful in life, in the banking sphere. My dad used to echo bank, now semi-retired man. I don't think men like that ever retire. <laughs> and then my mom was very successful in banking. She was at Ghana Commercial Bank, GCB, for about 30 years. And so we thank them and we thank God for bringing them into my life. So I spent born and raised here in Ghana and really spent most of my sort of young years here. I spent about one year of high school, my last year in Canada, boarding school there in Hamilton, which is a strange place, Hamilton, but nice place to land. Then went to U of T, University of Toronto, where I did policy and economics, grade school there in Canada. And then from there, worked for a family office in Canada, which I think is where things got really interesting for me. So the family being the Chandaria family out there in Toronto, and for those in Toronto in business, a lot of them probably know them, very successful and connected family there. And the Chandaria family are a Canadian family, but by way of Kenya and then India. And so the family in itself, it's extended family as well in Kenya, is quite successful as well. So those in Nairobi, those in Kenya will know the name, Chandaria, how successful in many different businesses in Kenya. And so I was quite lucky to join the family at a time when, although they had been quite successful in sort of consumer goods space in North America, they were looking to diversify a bit more, looking to do a lot more outside of North America. And so we actually spent a lot of time in East Africa. So Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda. I would say my first trip out was to Rwanda, and that was a fantastic first two days. So we got to meet the president, and then as well, the next day was the 20th anniversary of the end of the sort of horrible war mm. genocide that they had there. <laughs> exactly. So it was a remarkable day and really inspired me, Rwanda especially, as an inspiring country. I think really uh, that day sort of clicked 
or accelerated my sort of drive towards doing more in Africa and especially in my country. I don't know if you know this, Nikkei, but you know, when you're a young youth in Africa, typically you just want to get out. And yeah. That was the same. Yeah, yeah. You just want to get out of there. You're frustrated by what you see on the ground and what you see on TV in another country, right? Yeah. You know, like, why is this not happening here? But being in Rwanda and seeing what Big Boss there had done in the country, I was really amazed by it. I thought, you know, if a country as small as Rwanda can do this, then no, I can my own country, Ghana. And so, yeah, it was great. I was a business analyst for the, for the family. We were looking at different opportunities in tech, in agriculture, and in infrastructure. Great education for me, learning from some of the best and really sort of understanding what it takes to build a business, you know, source the business, build a business, finance it, get it to the level. And so spent five years there with the family. It's very emotional for me when I left. Still in touch with them. Great people. Will forever be grateful to them. And yeah, decided to come back home, sort of work a bit closer with my family, my dad and my mom here. And really with regard to many different sectors, but I'll but today we'll focus on mostly tech. Within the tech space, I've made some uh, micro investments. One company which uh, we're mutually sort of connected is Accessible Global, which is a property technology platform, which essentially is looking to really change the game in two main ways. And so we're looking to be sort of a world-class brokerage platform, which is something you don't really find. Usually people get real estate. Oh, this is my family member. Oh, this is the guy that bought me this house. But there's no real name brand. And then on the back end, we're looking to be the sales force for property developers, agents, sort of uh, massive funds or family offices that sort of are housing property and need to manage it. Our CRM tool can help you manage leads, your team, your property as well. And so it's sort of synchronized package platform. And so I work much more closely with that and have some other investments in Africa and in North America as well. Consumer goods and others. And then I decided to as well join a group called Mansa Capital as well, started by my buddy Maluku, who had been raising capital for startups. And it was very interesting to me because just to get oversight exposure into different startups out there, but as well oversight exposure into different funds as well. And working with Sesto and some of the other tech companies, you find that. Raising capital in itself is a full-time job, and it really takes a lot out of the CEO really to do that. And no one can know everybody as well. You don't know every fund out there. You don't know what mandate these funds have as well. And so we try to provide that service to some of these startups. And for me, it's also just good to learn what's out there as well and see where perhaps I can put capital as well if I wish to. So just as full-on capital with different funds. That's really what I'm into. There are other things, but maybe we, for this purpose of this show, let's focus on tech. I'm also sort of involved in sort of infrastructure financing as well on the side. But tech is, I think, I'm the most passionate about. That's awesome. I don't know where to start. There's so much to unpack. Let's start with your move back to Ghana and deciding to join the family office. And both your parents were highly successful with their careers and banking and what have you. What was that like for you in then working with your father? Did you feel a sense like his success eclipsed you and your identity? Just talk us through that personal journey that you went through. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think that's natural for most people to feel that way, but I don't think I've ever felt that way. I mean, I'm not jealous of my dad for being successful. I'm happy he was, uh, thank God for that, thank God for the life I have. But it's more, if you think about it, maybe friendly competition. So someone shoots 10 free throws in a row. Okay, I want to do 11. Why not, right? And my dad would have taught me how to shoot the free throw. And so I should be better. That's how I usually think about it, the sense that, They've done it to a certain level. And my dad, even from when he was young, would say that, Kweku, you know, life is not as easy for me as it is for you. You have to make your life, sort of your kid's life, easier as well than your life was. And he said his dad told him that. And so I think it's just a message that sort of threw in my head. And it's probably going to be the same thing I tell my kids. Sometimes it's a little annoying, but I think it's important, you know, to just keep saying the same thing sometimes to your kids and so. Because really, it stuck in my head. And so for me, I mean, my dad and my mom have been great mentors for me. Obviously, you don't always take the path that they want. Perhaps it would have been easier in a way to just sit in an office and sort of just do what they do. Because I saw what they do and I, I realized I understand what they do. And they would give me even maybe much more direct advice as well. But I think the path I'm in now is also interesting for them as well. Because I know my dad really did want to sort of be an entrepreneur, but for some reason it didn't work out. And, you know, once he had a family, he had to get a stable job and he's been quite successful within that. And I think even for him, he's been an entrepreneur within even EcoBank as well. He opened up a lot of the EcoBank subsidiaries in East Africa. So in fact, when I was in Rwanda, a lot of people knew him there. I was like, oh, okay, because he had opened it. So I think you learn different things from them, the family. And for me, a lot of people say it to me, oh, your dad is it's been very calm for me. I understand the task. I understand what he's done. And I understand why it makes it easier and also challenging for me as mm. well uh, in two different ways to get to the level I want to be. But for me, I didn't really, I think more or less it's a blessing. That's excellent. And you do a lot. <laughs> in the family office, you mentioned Sesso Global, this tech real estate company, Mansell Capital. As a family investing, how did you decide on which industries you would invest in, which stage of businesses you would invest in? Talk us through that journey and gaining clarity as to, okay, what do we want? What are our investment objectives? Or did you not know? I like the last part. Did you not know? So I think with everything else you do, you have a general thesis. So let's pick Sesto because just for an, as an example. So with respect to Africa, my general thesis is that Africa will do real growth. I mean, you just look at the general trajectory of it and it's moving in the right direction, even if you'd like it to move faster. When I was with the Chandaria family, in fact, I really, for, for, I think the reason why I'm very bullish on Africa is actually because of them, which is a very interesting. And the reason why maybe I tend to sort of look at doing different things or I can look at different sectors is because of them as well, because that's what they did. That's what basically I think I've been trained to do, which is analyze different opportunities in different sectors as well, but with a very hard focus on Africa, right? So with respect to Sesso in general, Daniel, who's the CEO, I met already before, about two years prior, before my investment. So I knew him in some way already, and I had also understood the opportunity already. We when we met, we bonded over a company called Terranet, 
which is a Canadian private company that manages the land registry for the province of Ontario. And so he at the time was looking to work with the Ghana government to tie it as well. And so with respect to that, I understood the space. And so understanding the space, I mean, understanding what Terranet was doing in Canada and Ontario, you find Toronto has the fastest growing skyline. Toronto has a lot of investment coming through from not the diaspora, but some Chinese investment individuals, even like me, we have some property there as well. And so you find that, and I went through the process of buying property and it's quite simple. So you ask yourself, why is it so opaque here? Why is it so corrupt sometimes here? Why is it so inefficient? And then you ask yourself why that is. And then someone comes in with a solution. So I guess Daniel, then it made sense to me. You were asking sort of a lot of questions. He answers them. And then you figure out from there, okay, this makes sense. Let's dip our toes in this and see how it goes. And I want to take a more sort of active role in it as well, obviously coming back just to understand what it takes to run a tech business here as well. That's important to understand because, you know, staying there in Canada, I think one of the best countries in the world, just too, too cold, too, too cold, though it would be number one. But you find that the country is sort of, everything is quite straightforward. And so coming here back home, I already knew that was not the case, but you have to live it to understand it. And so with that particular investment, it was sort of, as you can see, a whole ball of different reasons why we put some money in. And I think it's sort of paying dividend now. I think it will really capture the market as well in terms of the property market in Africa, which no one has looked at. I think now PropTech is becoming a thing, but no one has looked at. And that's what was interesting to me. I venture within that. No, wow, that's pretty cool. Wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, you were comparing your experience in Canada compared to when you came to Ghana and working in a startup and the challenges on the continent. Can you elaborate on those? What are the challenges for a startup tech company on the continent? And then we'll talk a little bit later about the prop tech space. So I'll say this. There are numerous, obviously, hurdles and challenges. Again, one of the reasons why I came was that opportunity comes with challenges, right? So Within that, obviously, access to capital is, is one thing. I do think that's changing as well, you know, with family offices such as yourself, mine, sort of putting in capital in some of these companies. So access at, a, at the lower tier is coming through. With anything else, obviously, sort of sometimes regulation, regulation either not being there or regulation coming in to halt things as well. And so, you know, regulation is needed as much as most capitalists would like for it to be not there. I think it's needed. But it has to be done in the right way. You can't bottleneck people just because you don't understand what's going on, right? And you find now even with COVID, I think people are more lax with respect to tech now because they understand we will need it like we did the like, past few months, right? And then there are some other issues, maybe even within that talent is always an issue. Again, these are things that I think are going away, but it's not always easy to find talent. We at CESO utilize a lot of talent from Ghana and Nigeria. And you find the difference really between the two. I think Ghanaian tech is much more loyal to you and they will stay, mm. but perhaps are not today at the level of Nigeria. And I think that's just because Nigeria, there's just much more competitiveness within there. And so I think Nigerian tech is, at least the talent there is at a higher level. But the issue is that they easily leave you either for better pay or to start their own thing, which is fair game to them. That is the game, right? But you find that the talent pool is not big enough then to sort of service 
our clients. So you find with some tech companies, obviously they have to get talent outside as well, which sometimes is good, but I don't think it should be a heavy mix of that. I think it would be good if there's a lot more local talent because even within our talent, you know, people that work with us, they bought land before. So mm-hmm. it's easier for them to anticipate and understand how a platform should work. And so those things you can't get from anyone outside. Those would be sort of the three main hurdles. There are obviously issues just within the realm of even the private sector. You find that, at least I found that I used to talk a lot about blockchain with respect to Cecil. Mm-hmm. And I realized there's no need to, <laughs> don't, yeah, there's no need to talk too much. I think sometimes I talk too much. There's no need to talk about blockchain you know, for a developer that is really just looking to sell their property, right? So just understanding that and sort of simplifying the way you talk, understanding that, okay, this may make sense in Canada, but coming here just because it makes sense in Canada doesn't mean it should make sense here and not to sort of think about it in that way and to adapt pretty quickly. And that's really the most important thing, just to adapt quickly as well and to be as frugal as you can so as to make sure that your cash goes a long way. So those are a few of the things that you find within that. And even within those buckets, I'm sure there are different things within that. But I think other tech companies find the same issue. It's the same thing. And it's just because it's very nascent here, right? And because of that, there will be challenges. But I feel as though because of that, there are opportunities. And I think Africa in a lot of ways is like the wild, wild west. Certainly not Google, but it's kind of like that, right? So you find that because of that, you know, and just like that, the gold rush back then, different opportunities back then, that's what's happening here, right? And so better to sort of come in now before it gets too mature. Why not? I hope and think I'm going to live a long time. So why not start this young and sort of grow with it as well, right? So yeah, there are challenges for sure. And I've said a few of them and there may be even a few more that I've forgotten, but for me, the opportunities are so massive that those challenges are failing. Yeah, I'm of the same opinion. And I loved what you said about not just copying and pasting and adopting ideas and strategies from Canada, for instance, and thinking it will work in Africa. Africa is a unique continent. And we need to think about customized strategies, solutions for the continent to be able to move forward. And indeed, there are so many opportunities I'm intrigued from your experience with the family office you worked with back in Canada, because on the continent, seeing multi-generational businesses and wealth is a rarity amongst the indigenous community. But amongst the Indian community, those of Indian descent that are on the continent, it's a different story, right? We tend to see third gen, fourth gen. From your experience with them, what lessons did you learn? in terms of how they run businesses and manage wealth. You were talking about how they're very entrepreneurial and they go after things. What other lessons do you think we can learn as the indigenous African community to learn from? That's a very interesting question. Obviously, for me, that is something I studied from them, whether that's sort of indirect or not, consciously or unconsciously. But what I think I did learn to understand, just listening to the stories of the old man, especially, and I've been a great man, great, 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 great man, uh, and how sort of he thought his kids, which are two girls and, and a boy, who both who all work with the company now today, is that really, I think it was about, for Naveen, that's why I say even with my dad, I think he kept saying the same thing over and over again to the kids, which I think is important in the sense that he kept telling them the story and how he got there. And so it's important, I think, those stories, passing them on, 
it's funny as Africans, especially as well, it may be even that we've lost that trait in a sense, or we lost it at some point, maybe as things coming back, you know, telling your kids stories of the past. No one really does that, really, if you think about it, or they didn't really do it at some point. And telling people what you went through, what you did, the strategies that you took to get there, right? Something that Naveen constantly did, even with me as well, right? Telling me some of the stuff he, he got up to, right? And what he needed to do. He realized it's not glamorous stuff as well. You know, now he lives in a big mansion. He has the nice parties. But back when he was a young man, he was really hustling out there, trying to make sure that he got the deal done, needed to do what he needed to do to get revenue, to get profit. And so I think that was one of the major things. And the other one was really him, I think also as well, bringing the kids into the business early. And that's something that they even do now. So even the kids are always at the office or when they have events or the kids are there well dressed up as well. They always ask the kids to talk to people as well. The kids are saying nonsense. So just to talk to people so that they learn how to talk to people, how to talk to especially grownups as well. And even being within the factories or seeing what's going on, because you realize kids do internalize things a lot as well, within that as well. And so I find those are two main things. And I actually, it's very interesting to me because I just, just recently with a very prominent female entrepreneur here in Ghana, just yesterday, who's now sort of a property developer herself. And we shot a video of her and she was telling her story as well, how she built up her business. And she had a very interesting take on why, especially in Ghana, there are more female entrepreneurs than there are male entrepreneurs. Well, at mm-hmm. least there are more female entrepreneurs here in Ghana than sort of globally as well. And talking about the fact that, first of all, lots of Ghanaian men, let's say, were told to go to the office, work for someone. And then, so working in that sort of a market or something like that was not something that they saw something that they hoped to achieve, right? Whereas most Ghanaian women, especially after <laughs> Nigeria must go, which was something that happened here in Ghana, lots of mm. Nigerians yeah. were asked to leave. Because of that, there were lots of opportunities to open marketing stalls and what. And the women took that instead of the men, which is very different from other places. So she started off as a market seller, selling stuff, and then ended up being the number two distributor for textiles in Ghana, and number one with aluminium products as well. Right. So she's a massive entrepreneur here. And she mentioned how her son has now taken the role, but just how the fact that she would take him along with her as well, right? So to some of the stores. And so it matched with what the Chandarias did as well. And she, she would always tell her kids the stories. You know, she said she's best friends with her kids, telling them the stories. And so I feel that is maybe the two most important things. There are obviously are more structural things you may need to do in terms of setting up a family office and everything else. But just getting the kids involved in a way at the beginning where it's gamified, it's more fun for them, and it's almost normal for them, right? That, oh, I go to the office, or, oh, dad tells me these stories about blah, 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 he did. But even if it doesn't make sense to them, then it'll make sense to them at some point. So I think those are two main things that I found that the family or Naveen did well, and his kids are doing as well now. I loved all that you said, and you were talking about storytelling. And historically, we Africans, storytelling was a key part of our culture, but somewhere down the line, something got lost in translation, and it was the way we passed on history, we passed on culture, ceremonies, and things like that. So it's funny that 
in a lot of conversations I'm having on this podcast, a lot of what people say, you know, they're sharing their thoughts with me on what we need to build continents and build the family business space and wealth space. A lot of what they're telling us to do is pointing back to who we are in our history. I find that really fascinating. And the piece on gender is also really important. It's the same in Nigeria as well. We have the highest rate of female entrepreneurship in the world. And it's very interesting as a female, I feel more empowered here than I felt in London. I feel there's more opportunity for me. So it's a very interesting time. Yeah. You're a father, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm um, a father? Oh, yes. No, 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 I'm not a father. Oh, no, 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 I thought not. I heard you say something about kids. Maybe I misunderstood you. <laughs> no, I was talking about the Chandaria's kids. So them sort of following on the similar thing and then something that I would do as well when I do have kids. Hopefully soon, Nikki. Hopefully soon. <laughs> Maybe I'm prophesying it for you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe, Nikki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Just a last question. You mentioned the abundance of opportunity on the continent. And what are your thoughts on this free trade continental agreement? What does it mean for entrepreneurs, family business owners? Just unpack your thoughts on that. Well, I think it should have happened yesterday, long, long time ago. Long, 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 long time ago. Obviously, our past is our past. Colonial countries sort of demarcated us, divided us. It's quite sad. The division is quite sad because you find that we haven't even really been able to build railway systems throughout mm. the continent because of those divisions. Mm. You know, oh, this country says this is my border, so I need to get so-and-so before you build this railway through me, or I need to do this. And obviously, Kwame Nkrumah had the idea of reuniting Africa, which I think would have been fantastic, but I also don't know if it would have been possible, to be honest with you, even back then. These days, maybe much more possible, and that's why we've come through with this, this agreement, right? But really, I think it should have been done a long time ago because you find that even with places like with Europe, with the United States, with China, what is it that, you know, if you think about those, even India, you think about those four places, what really is their sort of special sauce? One of the things is just a railway system. Hmm. Just running through hmm. their countries. People could go from here to there to here very instantly. And because of that, you learn from here or you see what the opportunities are. Oh, these guys don't have maybe aluminium. Oh, okay, we have aluminium back here. Okay, let's bring it. So like, it would have just been organic. Now we've put together this agreement, which I like, which is fine. I like that. Obviously, there are flights now. So that's similar to what a railway would have been. But I think we should still build the railways if we can, high-speed railways throughout the continent. That would be a fantastic thing to happen. I don't know when. Obviously, in some places it's happening. But you find that that would have been perfect. And we wouldn't have needed to worry about trade with Europe, China, the United States, you trade amongst yourself. Yeah, mm -hmm. And you're much more independent and you know that, oh, okay, I can sell my goods to Zambia from Ghana. Why am I bothering about the United States? It's quite interesting because I lived in Canada and Canada does 70% of its trade with the United States. They do not, almost wow. do not bother with any other place. And the rest of it is with London, right? And then a bit in China now. And really, they almost don't bother anywhere else. Why? Because the United States is right there. It's their neighbor. It makes most sense to trade with them, right? They have similar rule sets to them, and it's very easy to connect there. It should be the same here. I should be trading with Ivory Coast, Togo, Nigeria. It should be very easy. Nigeria, it should be very easy to be trading between ourselves. 
why bother with anywhere else? And if anything else comes, it's okay. It's a cherry on top, right? So that I believe should have happened a long, 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 long time ago. And I'm happy it's happening now. And again, with everything else, we hope it accelerates and moves a bit quicker than, than it is today. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's such a shame that this large continent with this huge population, 1.4 billion people, buoyant, youthful population, with so much resources, hasn't maximized intra-African trade. But sometimes when I get quite frustrated as to what we've seen till date, I realize that we're not putting things in context enough and being fair to ourselves. It's the colonial legacy, you know? Africa was not designed for intra-African trade and cooperation. It was designed to for resources to be taken oh. out in one direction. Oh. Infrastructure was designed that way. In Nigeria, the railways are typically from the north down to the ports because the mining resources were in the north. And mm. one of the reasons why the British came was for the tin. So mm. they were mine the tin, put them on the railways, down to the ports, fly them out for trade. So historically, our trading patterns have been with our colonial masters, even our routes and what have you. So this continental agreement is an exciting thing. Rail is critical to the economic development of a nation. I don't know what it's like in Ghana, but here in Nigeria, the railway is poor. Quality-wise and quantity-wise, we still are using the same infrastructure that the new government, I'll give them credit, they've revamped some of the tracks, but a lot of the tracks are still the same that the Brits left. So even in terms of speed, availability, frequency of trains, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to be able to yeah. see that this wild, wild west, as you put it, really develops and is the new frontier. I agree completely. And yeah, the railways are similar exactly to what you said. I think it's similar across most of Sub-Saharan Africa, right? So yeah, I agree with you. It really is that the past and sort of learning from that, internalizing that, and then moving forward. My usual thing is that it's quite obvious that the colonial sort of past is, is what has brought us to this point. But at what point do we sort of realize, okay, yeah, it was that. Let's move forward from that. That's usually my thing. Like, I get it completely. That is the reason, but it can't be the reason forever, right? So the whole point is that, I guess, Nikkei, you and your audience here and everybody else, I think we all understand it's our job to sort of pull on from our forefathers, or our parents, and just sort of move the needle on the continent. That this massive, massive continent, the biggest continent out there with the most of everything, the abundance is too much even, and we should be doing way, way more. Indeed. Thank you so much, Kweku. I've really enjoyed this conversation. If anyone wants to reach you or get hold of you, how best can they? Well, my email is usually good. And so perhaps I'll give one of my emails. So it's k.essien at mansacapital.co, which is M-A-N-S-A-C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot C-O. You can find me there or on LinkedIn as well, Kweku S-E-N, K-W-E-K-U-E-S-S-I-E-N. You'll find me right there. So again, real pleasure being on here. And I really enjoyed this conversation. We need more of these. And I look forward to uh, hearing more as well from you, Nikkei. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Wow. There was so much about that conversation that really, really inspired me. Kweku talking about how he really wasn't 
intimidated by the success of his parents, but instead he was inspired. And I found that to be just so inspirational because a lot of us next gens, we do struggle with being compared to parents or even comparing ourselves to our parents' success. And that success creating a shadow where it's very difficult to step out of and just be our own person. And I loved the piece that he said, I wish we'd had more time to go into it about his father being an intrapreneur as opposed to an entrepreneur, having worked in Bank for many years. And I think that we need to have more conversations on intrapreneurship as opposed to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is glamorized on social media, you know, boss babe, business this, get your money, get your bag. It's not beans. It's not easy. It's not for everyone. Some of us are called to work in other people's businesses and be entrepreneurs. As next gens, entrepreneurship is a very viable path, both outside of the family enterprise and within. For instance, you could be within the family enterprise and be setting up new products, establishing new locations, growing, looking for new ventures. I think this is something that we need to think about more. But anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really enjoyed this episode. And if you did too, please share the love and subscribe as well. Subscribe. Thank you so much. Take care and God bless you.